Let's now turn for our scripture reading to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians 3, and we'll read the verses 14 through 21. For this reason I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might through his Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height, to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, the knowledge of grace in Christ inspires prayer for more. That's our theme for this morning, as it was for last week. In this prayer of the Apostle Paul, we see that he prays for the very best things that we could desire or expect from God. God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is our Father for Christ's sake. Our text last week came to a climax in the first part of verse 17, where we read that Paul prays that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. When considering this mystery, which uh, the Apostle Paul expounds in this passage, this mystery of the inclusion of the, of the Gentile nations, along with the Jews, on equal terms, into one family, into one household of faith, through the Lord Jesus Christ. We also observe that that mystery of the gospel can really be captured, it can be summarized in one word, and that is Christ. Because Christ and the riches of God's grace in him lie at the very heart of the marvel of this grace that God has revealed. And in that connection, I call your attention to Colossians chapter 1 as further support of that where the Apostle Paul there also refers to this mystery in verse 27. He says concerning the Gentiles, To them God will to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. There the Apostle actually summarizes the substance of this mystery in terms of Christ and Christ in you. Paul prayed that Christ might dwell in our hearts by faith. And actually, our text this morning from verse 17b to the end of this chapter, it really expounds on that. It, it, it further elaborates and explains the significance of Christ dwelling in our hearts by faith. What does it mean to have him in us? What are we taught here to believe and to pray for and to expect from the the revelation of this mystery to us? Well, in a way, we can answer that by saying, more grace. That's what we're taught to pray for and to believe in and to expect from God. More grace, amazing grace, 
certain grace, unending grace, grace through unlimited divine power and love. And so we're going to begin by considering those blessings that we receive by grace as they're explained further, particularly in verses uh, 17b through verse 19. And there's three things that we want to uh, zero in on in these verses, defining, elaborating the, the riches of this grace. And first, the first is establishment in love. Paul continues in verse 17, that you being rooted in, and grounded in love. Now he's going to finish that sentence, but this very description of his prayer for them, that they would be rooted and grounded in love in itself teaches us something profound, doesn't it? It describes Christians in a very, in a very fundamental way. We might say literally fundamental because it has to do with basic things, foundational things. And Paul uses that imagery of a foundation that you may be being rooted and grounded. He uses two uh, illustrations, that of a foundation being grounded and that being of being rooted. It's the imagery of a foundation and of roots reaching deep into the soil. And with respect to that foundation and with respect to that soil, they both illustrate the same thing, and that is love. Paul uses what we might call mixed metaphors. In other words, he, he combines imagery, comparisons that really don't uh, fit together, right? He uses, on the one hand, an architectural image, that of a foundation, that, that pertains to a building. And by that imagery, he makes clearer that the Christian life indeed is a life that is uh, stable, a life that is fixed upon unchanging love. Christians are grounded in love. But he also, also uses an, uh, an, a, a comparison from the world of agriculture, from the world of living things, rooted and grounded in love, indicating that we are like plants that are, that are nourished by a constant supply, a living supply. We might think of what the Lord Jesus teaches in John 15 about being the vine and we are branches. We are joined to him. We are united to him. We are rooted in divine love so as to receive this nourishment from the soil of God's unchanging love. In fact, even the language here also involves the, the picture of a, of a constant state of the Christian's life. Being rooted and grounded in love. That's descriptive of a state of being from which these other blessings then, they are built or they sprout from that constant grounding and rootedness in God's love. And brothers and sisters, we are taught here that the Christian faith indeed is a belief in and it is a life of divine love. We have such a, a testimony also in, in John's uh, first epistle in chapter 
4 and verse 16, where he says, We have known, that's the language of assurance, of knowledge, the knowledge of faith. We have known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love. And he who abides in love abides in God and God in him. We believe this love that God has for us. It's been abundantly revealed. And we know it's true. And we dwell in this love. That's where our home is, in God's love. And those who dwell in God's love, well, God dwells in them. So this love is just so, so fundamental. And our constant resort to this love by faith, our constant remembrance of this love, our constant consideration of it through the gospel, this is just central to the Christian life. We are to remain upon this foundation actively by faith. We are constantly to return to these roots. We're constantly to sing uh, from our hearts by faith, Oh, love of God, how strong and true, how changeless, yet how ever new, how uncomprehended and unbought, beyond all knowledge, beyond all thought. And that provides a transition to this second blessing, where the riches of grace are described not only in terms of being established in love, but knowing the unknowable. To know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge. You might say, well, we have kind of a contradiction here, right? To know what passes knowledge, if it passes knowledge, well, how can you know it? What does this mean? How can you know the unknowable? Well, it's Paul's way of teaching us. It's his way of expressing that this knowledge that we have of the love of Christ, it's true. It's a well-founded, it's a genuine knowledge. So in that sense, we know, but it's too great for us to grasp. In other words, we have a genuine, but not a not an adequate, not a comprehensive, certainly not any kind of exhaustive knowledge of this love. There's always more to learn. There's always more to experience. There's always more to wonder at. And that's the point of these dimensions of that love, which which uh, Paul speaks of there in terms of width and length and depth and height. Four dimensions that he uses. He speaks of a boundless width of this love. Oh, wide, embracing, wondrous love we sing. And it may be very relevant to what we've been considering throughout this chapter in terms of the the, the nature of this mystery of the gospel that Paul first of all, selects this matter of width. There is such an expansive reach of the gospel because the manifestation of God's love is not simply to the uh, the Jewish people. It's not simply to Israel. God so loved the world, remember, that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Yes, this is essential to our understanding of the mystery. And Paul, Paul's prayer, we note here also, is that we may be able to comprehend with all the saints, with all Christians everywhere, something of uh, the magnitude of this surpassing love of Christ. This is for all Christians. Now that's why we, we, uh, 
raise some eyebrows, perhaps, or I think we should, if we ever hear or perhaps sing this familiar song. It's uh, a song that is dear to many. I realize that. It has sentimental associations for many. You, you might have heard the, the song, In the Garden. I come to the garden alone, right? And uh, I dare say it's the favorite song of many people. But they ought to, they ought to listen carefully to the words, words and evaluate some of those words. He walks with me and he talks with me and he tells me that I am his own and the love we share as we tarry there, none other has ever known. Where does that come from? That sentimentalizes the love of Jesus Christ. Yes, the love of Jesus Christ is no, to be known in an intimate and in a personal way, but not in a way that claims a kind of love that is unknown to others. Paul's prayer is that all the saints might comprehend the width and length, the depth, the height of this love. And that's part of the joy of knowing this love, is knowing that it is so wide and that it is shared by so many. And our own appreciation, no, it's not in our songbook, by the way. <laughs> uh, for good reason. So there is the width of Christ's love. And then, secondly, there is an unden- unending, unending length. It never ends. Jesus, having loved his own, he loved them to the end. He loved them to the utmost. So that even just before his death, as he faced the agony of the cross, he was lavishing out the testimonies of that love in the words and deeds that he showed to his disciples, washing their feet, comforting them with these rich promises. The love of Jesus never ends. In the ages to come, remember verse 7 of chapter 2, We're made alive. We're raised up together with Christ so that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. It's a love that doesn't end when old age comes and our memories fail. It doesn't end when the lives of loved ones end or other loves disappoint us or forsake us. There is no end to the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then there is an unfathomable depth to that love. We can't plumb the depths. We can't grasp the wonder of how deep this love of God is for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. There are no depths beyond the reach of his love. Or consider the manifestation of that love in Christ himself. Think of the distance of the incarnation, to use that language, from the heights of glory. He who was rich, who dwelt from all eternity past, if we could use such language, in the intimate fellowship of the Trinity, in love, and from the heights of glory, he descended deep, 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 deep deep into the darkness of the virgin's womb, deeper into the darkness of Golgotha, where he experienced the abandonment of God, and he experienced the depths of anguish under the judgment of God for our sins. Here in his love, not that we love God, but that he loved us 
and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. He sent his son to appease the wrath of God against us by his death. There are no depths like the depths of such love. And it's a kind of love that can reach to the very depths of the most hopeless, the most miserable, the most desperate situation of sinners. There is no enslavement to sin that is too great, too deep for Christ to break. There is no misery that is too hopeless for his love and grace to reach. There is no despair that is beyond the power and grace of Christ. After all, how did this love come to us when we were dead and trespasses and sins? But God, because of the great love, his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses and sins, he made us alive. It reached us in the depths of our natural hopelessness. And he made us alive. And he's teaching us of the heights of his love. He He raised us together, made us to sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. There is an unimaginable height to God's love. Your mercy, O Lord, reaches to the clouds. We or reach is in the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the clouds. The psalmist used these uh, uses these dimensions in an effort to express something of the wonder of God's love for us. Eye has not seen, nor has the ear heard, nor has it entered into the heart of man to conceive of the things that God has prepared for those who love him. Such knowledge is too wonderful. It is high. I cannot attain to it. And those are the impressions that Paul wants us to have. Paul wants us to realize that when it comes to the love of God in Christ, we are before this vast ocean. We are before this endless sky. We are before these immeasurable dimensions of an infinite God who shows such amazing love. You might ask the question, you know, you've, you've elaborated the meaning of these dimensions. Is that really what the text means by these dimensions? How do we know? Well, I guess the most I can say is that the things that I mentioned are, are the things, the kind of things by which the love of God in Christ is revealed. But this is just a beginning, right? We could talk about the love of God revealed to us in the sacraments that he gives to us, in the supper by which he feeds and nourishes our souls and testifies to his love. We could speak of the, the baptism of our children and our baptism that testifies to the washing away of our sins. Oh, we could speak of the fellowship of the saints. Oh, we could speak on and on and on. Because as long as we stay within the bounds of Scripture, there's no end to an elaboration of the dimensions of this love. It's surpassing knowledge. And if we stay within Scripture, it's like we can't go wrong. If this is our theme, and we expound it on the basis of the teaching of God's Word, There's an endless resource for exposition on such a theme. We can't exaggerate its greatness. So may the Holy Spirit illuminate our understanding and expand our hearts so that we might learn more and more of it. But then thirdly, there is 
another blessing that's uh, mentioned here, uh, a few words that, again, contain a, a world of meaning beyond our grasp, when Paul says that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. 19b brings this prayer to a kind of climax with such language that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Paul's prayer is that our entire redeemed humanity would be filled to our creaturely capacity. He's not suggesting that somehow we can be submerged in the divine nature or be one with God in such a way as to blur the distinction between the creator and the creature. He has an infinite fullness which our creaturely capacity is never capable of containing. But according to our capacity, the prayer is that God's fullness indeed would fill us. It's like his prayer or in chapter 5, verse 18, where he commands us to be filled with his Spirit. There's no dissatisfaction. There is no restless craving through the filling of the Holy Spirit. You know, you probably have heard this illustration, this language, that we all have a God-shaped hole in our lives. There's an empty place in us that can never be filled except by God. And there's there's something true uh, with that imagery and that, that picture. But in a way, there's something inadequate to it, something incomplete about it. Because it almost suggests the idea that, well, I'm doing pretty good. I'm I'm doing okay, except there is this hole in my life. But other than that, things are fine. And that wouldn't be an accurate description of who you are without Christ. It's not an accurate description of who I am without Christ. My life is nothing but a hole. It's like my life is a black hole. My life would just suck in this idolatrous world. And it would give nothing, nothing good. No light would come from this life. I would simply live a life of insatiable cravings that can never be satisfied because my eye is never filled with seeing, my ear is never filled with hearing, my my belly, my soul is never filled with eating and drinking, maybe temporarily, maybe for a while. But without God, our lives are nothing but like a black hole. Nothing satisfies for long. But in Christ, we begin to taste a fullness that involves a peace of conscience, things the world lacks, a rest, spiritual rest from those hurtful cravings. We begin to taste pure pleasures without a bad aftertaste. And we know that these things, they all come from God and that these things are actually in our life and that God promises more. And so, yes, we're dissatisfied, but it's not a dissatisfaction that leaves us empty and miserable, but it's a dissatisfaction that keeps us expecting more grace from God. And there's a kind of sweetness and a kind of fullness, even in the pursuit. Filled with all the fullness of God. To be honest, brothers and sisters, I must say, I don't really think I know what that means. Do you? I believe it. And we should pray to know more of it with confidence that someday we'll know what it means fully. And that leads, secondly, to consider the assurance of the, uh, that we are given of such grace. And I'm looking here at the doxology. Verse 28 begins, Now to him who is able, now to him be glory, Paul will conclude. 
But the language of this doxology is in such a form as to uh, to fuel our praise with, with a kind of expectation of God's power toward us. This description of God here is a great encouragement to us to ask, right? To pray. We have many such encouragements. But here we're taught that whatever we ask God according to his will, it is never too much for him to accomplish. He is able to do all that we ask. In fact, he is able to do above all that we ask. In fact, he is able to do abundantly above all that we ask. In fact, he's able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask. Oh, yes. And he's able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. And God's ability is not just out there, but it's in here. It's according to a power that works in us. We may not be able to change our circumstance, our difficult situation. God can, oh yes. But perhaps what's more relevant so often in our lives is that God can change us to glorify him in our situation. And that's really often what we need the most, isn't it? Greater is he who is in us than he that is in the world. And the power of Christ in us glorifies God when Christ is shown indeed to be in us. And that means that he is then shown through us and by us. And we're to pray for that, right? Because the glory of God is manifested, as we'll see in the church, and it's through the power that dwells in us. And we're to pray for that with the assurance that indeed this work of God in us will increase, right? We could, we could cite Philippians 1 chapter, uh, 6. I recall sharing this verse recently with someone who looked at this promise that he who began this good work in you will complete it unto the day of Christ Jesus. And the eyes went wide open with a sense of wonder and excitement. It's a thrill. It sends chills up my spine even to have such words before my eyes. Right? That's how the promises of God should affect us. God's work of grace that he has begun, he'll never drop it. It will be expanding, it will be growing, it will be increasing until the work that God has begun is complete and it's uh, perfected in glory. And then his praise indeed will be perfect forever. But this uh, text does conclude with uh, a description of the praise that we offer for such grace. In verse 21 where it says, To him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations. And that's significant also because it teaches us that the church is the stage upon which the glory of God is revealed. It's not the stage of musical productions or multimedia presentations or, or movies. No, the church of Jesus Christ is the stage upon which the glory of God is revealed. The church experiences and the church ex- displays God's love. Sinclair Ferguson in his comments on this uh, verse says, we need each other to grasp the measure of Christ's love. A love that is made visible in the lives of fellow believers. Isn't that what we're taught later on in chapter 4? We'll consider it uh, more directly, but he uh, 
uh, says of the, of the, of believers speaking the truth in love, that we may grow up in all things unto him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share. Well, what's that effective working? It's the Spirit of God dwelling in all the members. Causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. It's through a body indwelt by the God of love, exercising love, growing in love, that the glory of God is revealed in the church from generation to generation. You see, it's a display that will continue forever to all generations because it's by Christ Jesus. And Jesus Christ said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. In closing, brothers and sisters, just imagine for a moment these uh, uh, Ephesian Christians who first read this letter of the Apostle Paul. Imagine them this morning being transported into the future to our day and taken on a tour, a little tour from continent to continent, from country to country. And they're admitted into the assemblies of God's people. And in many of them, they hear this letter that they had read thousands of years ago being read and expounded in the church of Jesus Christ. And they hear of this Savior who, whom they've come to trust, being worshipped and adored in all these different cultures, with all these different languages, in all different parts of the world. They would probably say something, you know, when we prayed for the kingdom of, of God to advance, we had really no idea what we were praying for. God answered our prayers beyond what we're able to ask or think. We couldn't comprehend the significance of our moment in time as a part of this vast work of God down through the centuries, throughout the world. And the wonderful thing is, oh, that's just the beginning. That's just the beginning. Throughout all generations, forever and ever, to God be glory in the church off into eternity. And to be a part of that, to be united to this Savior, well, that's reason for doxology. That's reason for praise. To God be the glory for such amazing grace. Grace that inspires us to expect more, to pray for more, to believe in more. To the glory of His name. Amen.